0: to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. My name is Chris Chirano, joined always by Stephen Canistracy. Hello, everybody. This is episode 17, where we'll be talking with Randy Cabell. Uh, Randy is well-known for his contributions to the Early American Brass Band repertoire by creating additions for the Civil War music of the 19th Virginia Heavy Artillery Band, the Brass Band Journal, and Patriotic Songs and airs of the Confederate States of America, where all of these publications include various program notes, as well as important instrument substitutions that makes it more accessible to larger audiences. Usually the first E-flat cornet part and the first E-flat alto horn parts have B-flat cornet and French horn, in F substitutions in them. So basically, uh, these three full publications of music are now capable of being played in standard brass quintets. So super accessible, and we're really appreciative to Randy for all the, the work he's done with that.
1: Yeah, and he's also helped um, to finance uh, some reproduction instruments for various uh, early American brass bands uh, around the country. Um, and he has a recording with the Crestmark military band of some of the music from the 19th Virginia heavy artillery band books. Um, so yeah, like Chris said, I mean, he's done a lot to help make this music and this, um, period of American music history accessible to a wider group of people, especially when you think about it in the context of college age students who are playing in these chamber music groups with modern instruments, CB flat trumpets to kind of, um, Not really change the music at all other than bring it down into a little more comfortable range that can help with some endurance issues (laughs) that uh, that I know everybody runs into from time to time. So (laughs) it was great to talk to him and we really enjoyed the conversation. We are working with Randy on a plan to make some of his arrangements available uh, more widely. We're not quite sure what form that's going to take yet, but in the meantime, if you are interested in any of the music that Randy has arranged, shoot us an email at eabb.podcast at gmail.com, and we can work out a way to get that to you. When we do have a plan, we will announce it on our social media pages. Uh, We are on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, So make sure you can just search the Early American Brass Band Podcast on whatever social media platform you're on and we will pop right up. You definitely want to give us a follow over on those social media pages because that's where you can keep up to date with us kind of on a day-to-day basis and get all of the information right from us first. When we, uh, when we make decisions and whatnot. So like I said, when we come up with a concrete plan on how to do this, uh, that's where it'll be announced.
0: So make sure you follow us over there. And please enjoy our interview with Randy Cavill. Thank you so much, Randy Cavill, for coming on to the podcast today. It's, it's really a pleasure to have you on. So
2: thank you very much. Oh, well, listen, I really appreciate the uh, the invitation to do it and looking forward to it.
0: Great. So, Randy, I know a lot of your music kind of centers around Virginia, and you lived in Virginia a long time. Uh, Were you born in Virginia? Yeah, I was
2: born. um, My mother went, we lived in Covington, Virginia, which is right on the border. In fact, I compare Covington uh, with uh, Hot Springs, Virginia, and and White Sulphur Springs. everybody knows of the Homestead and the Greenbrier. Unfortunately, Covington is not in the same league. We've got a paper mill. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> and at the time, the uh, they had destroyed all the fish in the James River down to Norfolk. Uh, mm-hmm. They've they subsequently cleaned it up. But yeah, I was born. Uh, and so, so she went to the University of Virginia to have me. This was in 1932. Got gotcha, you, got gotcha. you. And I grew up in Virginia. Went went to Virginia's public schools. Uh, my father was activated with the National Guard in 1940, September 1940. <laughs> Uh, So we moved to Virginia Beach. So I went to the Princess Anne County Public Schools, which no longer exists since there's no longer a Princess Anne County. (laughs) Hmm. There you go. And then later moved. uh, He was made Army liaison officer after Pearl Harbor, and uh, we got quarters on the base at Norfolk. So we moved there, and I went to school in Norfolk, and then then back. Graduated in high school from
0: Covington. Gotcha. So a lot of a lot of Virginia. in in the early years. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Have you ever lived outside of Virginia?
2: Yeah, uh, I, uh, let's see, I went to Georgia Tech, so that was three years, uh, four years down there. Uh, Served in the Army for two years out in Fort Bliss, Texas. Lived in Philadelphia for a couple of years and worked for General Electric uh, and decided there was more to life than engineering, uh, went back to graduate school, this at the University of Virginia, and got an MBA and got my wife. Found my wife there. There you go. Uh, so then we moved to Atlanta when after she graduated. Uh, she was working on her doctorate in math. Uh, so we lived in Atlanta for about two years and moved to Cape Canaveral, Florida for about five years. And then back to Virginia. We lived in Vienna, McLean, uh, Great Falls, and Boyce.
1: So, Randy, how did you get involved with uh, with music in general? Has it always been a part of your life, or was it something that you found later on?
2: Well, it was uh, almost all part of my life. Uh, I was five years old, and I was I would make uh, I sang in the junior church choir, the Episcopal Church in Covington. (laughs) I remember making wooden crosses and marching through the our basement. And singing hymns, Onward Christian Souls. <laughs> so, my parents, neither one of whom were musical, uh, recognized the talent and took me to meet the director of the city uh, Covington Fireman's Band. He also was the director of the C&O Employees Band. You know, this was back in the 30s when every organization had a band, every town had a band. And he uh, looked at my little fingers and said that the uh, only instrument that would be suitable would be a soprano saxophone,
1: <laughs>
2: and know. so my parents found a secondhand curved soprano, which I played off and on for the next oh lord I guess it was about ten years, uh, and got to high school and uh, it looked like I was smoking a pipe. It was uh, you know, I was so tall and it was so small, I was embarrassed <laughs> to appear with it, and the band director fortunately found an alto for me.
0: There you go, yeah, and then I also knew that kind of. Uh when you started getting involved with, the, with brass bands and stuff, I, I knew you as a tuba player. So when did the, uh, the tuba become a part
2: of your, uh, your arsenal of instruments? <laughs> well, I uh, went to, um, uh, at Georgia Tech, I played in several bands. One of them was a Dixieland band. And we didn't have a tuba, but at the time, the most popular Dixieland band in the country was called the Firehouse 5 Plus 2. Apparently, they were a group of Walt Disney people who uh, started playing. And of course, they had a tuba and a banjo. And I thought, oh, you can't have a Dixieland band without a tuba and a banjo. Uh, So when we got down to Florida, I was doing something at the music store, I guess picking up music. I saw this old tuba on the shelf. I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's an old E flat tuba. I said, you will sell it? Yeah. He said, yeah. So I said, well, how much? I said, how about $25. (laughs) <laughs> and exactly. so that was it. I I brought it home and started blowing on it and uh, played it. Yeah, Never man. did really re- really learn to read the bass clef as as you probably know a secret with the E flat horn is if you're reading tr- a bass clef print it's in the treble clef and add three sharps and you just go on. That's what I did. Yeah, that's
0: yeah. how I read saxophone music also, just going the other way to Bass Cliff. <laughs> oh, really?
2: Place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reading... Uh, oh, I to,
0: thought that was out my out <laughs> <point. No. laughs> Maybe it was originally, but the secret's out now. <laughs> <laughs> so learning the tuba and getting involved with uh, with music uh, was all really interesting. In terms of the Civil War, would you consider yourself kind of always to be maybe a Civil War buff or did you only really get interested in the Civil War as it related to the the brass music that you kind of learned about later? How did that come about?
2: Well, it really came from two two directions, um, mainly the music. But my great grandfather was a captain in the Confederate cavalry,
0: hmm.
2: and uh, I think that's where I got my music from. Uh, we've got some letters uh, written about him after he died. He was mortally wounded in the last cavalry charge at Amelia Courthouse covering Lee's retreat. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I was, I've always been interested in Hugh McGuire, uh, you know, just from the viewpoint of being, him being in the Civil War. Um, as far as the brass band, I guess I got interested in it after I'd retired from IBM. We were living in Boyce, Virginia, which is right around the corner from Winchester. Uh, mm-hmm. So I got involved with the uh, university there, Shenandoah University, and they had a Civil War Institute. Mm-hmm. And I got to thinking with the Civil War Institute, and they also had a very fine uh, uh, band, uh, music uh, program. Uh, so I said, oh, well, I don't want to get involved with the Civil War. And that's when I found Rob Stewart out on the West Coast who made reproductions. And one thing led to another, and it just sort of fell together.
0: Yeah, so you were able to help. Shenandoah University create their their brass band do you remember what uh what they called that group
2: no it was a, it was a relatively unsatisfactory the whole arrangement was because I had no official standing with them hmm. and the, the band at Shenandoah really didn't have it want to have anything to do with these funny looking instruments they were hmm. all over the shoulder instruments and so consequently it was in the Civil War Institute and eventually i think what they did is they gave the horns away to a local uh civil war band group i think that's all
0: gotcha. i mm-hmm. gotcha gotcha i know that you helped as you just mentioned the shenandoah group i know that there was uh, a number of other groups that you kind of took under your wing and kind of helped to help out with acquiring instruments can you maybe talk about some of those other projects that you were involved with yeah in the, the uh let's see i guess acquisition the-
2: yeah, back, back to the emphasis on Virginia, uh, the Stonewall Brigade Band in Stanton, uh, as you know, has all of its original instruments, over-the-shoulder instruments, uh, but they're fragile. Uh, so what I did is I worked with them uh, to get reproduction instruments from Rob Stewart. Uh, and then, for uh, some reason, let's see, uh, I guess I got interested in VMI at the time. I uh, the ranking cadet who was killed at Newmarket was a cowboy, uh, very distant relative from Richmond. So I, that I was, I've always looked to VMI. Said so I never could survive at VMI, but I admire anybody who does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I worked with Colonel Brody uh, at VMI and uh, got them the musical instruments and uh, uh, they use them. Uh, let's see. Uh, worked just slightly with the arabian music foundation i think maybe i involved was involved in getting them one horn one reproduction horn gotcha so, so that, that's about the only one outside of virginia that uh I've, I've, only project i've had outside of Virginia.
0: Mm-hmm. so how were all these connections made were these instances where you knew that they were in need of help from uh an instrument acquisition standpoint or did you reach out to them, just wanting to help? Like how? How did you get involved with essentially four it, different? It was
2: more arrogance programs. than anything else. Uh, <laughs> like Professor Hill, Harold Hill, you need a boys' band. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to. Uh, I tried to, uh, and as as you well know from from the short time that we've known one another. I have great ideas about how other people should do things. (laughs) So that was basically it. I went and made suggestions to them. uh, And uh, most cases they were taken up to one degree or another.
0: I'd like to make the point that you've also helped the, uh, the George Mason university uh, early American brass band as well. You, you helped, uh, give us a an E-flat tuba and an E-flat alto horn that we still use. So thank you for helping us as well.
2: <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Well, you all are just, uh, you all you all are the best of the best because you're doing something with the music. And that's, that has always been my frustration is that uh, in, in most of those other instances, quite frankly, it was a kind of uh, flame of uh, new things. And then it just sort of dropped by the wayside. And I think you've sensed that when you've looked and talked to some of the places about, well, would you share your instruments? Oh, no, we might use them sometime.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's some people that still kind of want to hang on to them. There's some people that don't know where they are anymore. There's some, yeah, like you said, there's kind of this ebb and flow of, of interest almost yeah. in the in style of music. And you're right. Uh, on the Early American Brass Band Podcast website, we have a, a resource that lists a number of currently active civil war early American brass bands, as well as a list of bands that have gone inactive and yeah, seeing how many bands have existed and ceased to exist kind of what <laughs> was kind of like an indicator to, to Stephen and I and the green machine at George Mason university of needing to figure out a way to make sure that this will continue and that it's not just like a, a project for
2: a year or two. Type yeah. Yeah. I've played in a number of vast groups over the years, a number of groups over the years, and I've concluded that you've got to have something that re-energizes that group periodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can't just do what you've, you've done for, at least my experience has been, you can't do what you've done for the last 10 years because people don't get uh, continue the interest in it. Yeah, yeah.
1: and I think but, kind of where we're coming at at it from a little bit more perhaps an educational standpoint i mean we're both still doctoral students um and being euphonium players we're apt to dive more into the band history uh than maybe like the orchestral history sure. uh, that we get a lot of times through a university so and this era of history in the united states is rich with like the beginnings of band history and i mean you can trace how you know these um, brass bands that were active before, during, and after the civil war have then evolved into like what we see modern day right down the street with, you know, Pershing zone and the mil- and the Marine band and all those military yeah. bands. So it's more yeah. of, the, and that I think really helps us to energize, um, students at Mason to kind of get involved with this type of music. And it really helps us keep the interest going from a research perspective too, Good for you
2: well, kind we'll of hang in there. Yeah. forward. Yeah, you're, you're doing a great job, so yeah, hang in there
0: you. with it. I think our perspective as euphonium players, I think, is a, is a main aspect for it, too, because I know that when I wanted to start the group at Mason, one of the initial driving forces was, well, I'm a euphonium player. We've got like essentially no gigs, so I was looking to create a band that, <laughs> that would give myself more gigs. So. <laughs> yeah, and, and this time period is the invention of our instrument, so we're basically able to go back to the beginning.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I get, I get back to the gigs. I guess the only guaranteed gig for a euphonium player is a tuba Christmas. Yeah, so there a as, a lead, as the uh, euphoniums as a lead. Yeah, and that's a gig you
1: pay to do. Oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, some, sometimes. I mean, you pay like a ten dollars registration <laughs> fee just to you know offset the cost of printing the books and all. That I that didn't thing. realize. So, so but um, the one at the Kennedy Center in, D.C. in DC is, is free. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I I mean, yeah, it's it's for a good cause, the Tuba Christmas thing. One last thing maybe right. about the instruments, I was wondering you keep mentioning Rob Stewart's name and I was wondering maybe how you got linked up with him. Um was it just kind of his reputation for his craftsmanship that uh led you to him for the reproduction
2: instruments? Boy, you know, that is uh, you know, I'm not really sure how I got linked up with him. Um no, but it's all foggy. It would probably be in the early to mid 1990s and I, somebody just mentioned Rob Stewart on, on West Coast and you know, yep. one thing led to another. Yep. He's actually his, um, I, I talked to him later, I think he said, and this is, you know, 20 years ago, so I don't know how, whether it's changed, but he said he really is a, 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 a placer of secondhand instruments <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Other than designer, uh, rather than a designer, rather than a building, which is just, mm-hmm. well, apparently was a sideline time, but he's, he's really known for his quality reproductions. We mentioned how we were able to
0: get uh, the, the Mason Band was fortunate to, to receive some insurance from you as well. Did you ever, by any chance, own any, uh, any period Civil War <laughs> era instruments by any chance? No, I don't think
2: I ever did. The earliest I came, I had, the, I think that alto horn I gave you all, has an 1892 or 1893 date on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tuba i think has maybe a 1905 think, yeah that's yeah yeah it's how when uh, oh, there was a, a helicon that I gave to the uh, Richmond City Band uh, i forget i have a feeling of i don't know whether it was american or not but it went back to the 18 to 1870 mm-hmm. that's about the oldest one i ever had
0: got gotcha, you got gotcha. you did you ever have the opportunity to play uh, firsthand in one of these types of early american brass bands
2: no, not well. I did uh, with the with the Stanton group. Okay, set yeah. in with them Stonewall, a couple Stonewall. of times down there, and uh, we played. But
0: Absolutely. that's all. So your like hands-on involvement seems to have been your uh, instrument acquisition, helping through all these different organizations. But then, kind of a major, uh, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like a major way that you were involved in this community and with this music was through various uh, arranging projects that you were involved in. That's true. That,
2: that certainly is true of the uh, uh, 19th Virginia, arranging it and uh, providing some alternate instruments. Of, I don't know, uh, B-flat cornets, for example, as alternate to the E-flats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was another one. It wasn't a 19th century brass band, but I'm not sure I mentioned it to you. I did a CD of Jamestown music uh, because that's about as Virginia as you can get. Yeah, for sure. Right. And it was 1807, 1907, and a couple of selections for 2007 uh, on the CD. And Lehigh University recorded it. So, it's, oh, wow.
1: uh, when uh, do you know what year they recorded that?
2: Probably it was 2006 because we were getting ready for 2007. And, um, Oh, Lord, I forget the name of the people up there, but uh, we went up a couple of times to listen to them, uh, and it was really quite good. Uh, let us I'll send you a CD because it, uh, it's interesting. Oh, okay. yeah,
0: thank you.
1: I asked uh, when because my oldest brother, Dan, graduated from Lehigh University, uh, but that recording project took place before he would have entered
2: school. Oh, there. yeah. They had <laughs> uh, Diggs, David Diggs. He was the... Uh, director of the wind ensemble and they had a pretty good flow of money to produce CDs each year. So Mm -hmm. uh, it just happened that they didn't have a project for 2006, 2007. So um, he went ahead and and, and produced that and it was very good.
1: Neat.
0: So I have that uh, as a part of your writings, your arrangements that you do, you kind of put it underneath this umbrella of the digital heritage, Of Virginia. The Digital Heritage of Virginia. (laughs) Yes, you're right, you're right. Super, super official. And kind of, uh, some of the work that you've done includes the Civil War music of the 19th Virginia Heavy Artillery Band, uh, the Brass Band Journal for the Rest of Us. Yeah, yeah. Patriotic, patriotic songs and heirs of the Confederate States of America. So you have a lot of music kind of under this umbrella. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, uh, what made you select certain projects that you did because uh i will say that for all of this work that you do it includes copious uh liner notes uh program notes it has a lot of really interesting information included it has substitute parts you know the, you're basically publishing a book every time you do one of these publications so a yeah. lot of what i'm assuming many long hours has gone into each of these projects. So can you talk about kind of uh, what made you select what you did for these projects?
2: Well, as I said, it starts primarily, the, does it have something to do with Virginia? Uh, obviously, the 19th Virginia uh, band did because they were from Virginia. And the Jamestown was a great example because it, uh, the exposition was located in Norfolk. Newport News, Virginia. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the guiding force, I guess, was it had to have something to do with Virginia. The second thing was, was anybody else doing anything? Mm-hmm. And generally the answer was no. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's why I embarked upon it, uh, got software, and dug in. And I guess it was pretty much, uh, at one time I found one person who had heard of the 19th Virginia band, but I most of the time it was just sort of by myself. Gotcha.
0: Can you can you maybe give a, a little bit of background or some context to the 19th Virginia band? I know that that name's kind of been mentioned a few times in the interview so far and and your work with them is is awesome and and very vast. So can you maybe talk about them a little bit and maybe why the the writing that you did was kind of significant to preserve that?
2: Okay. First, it's the only, the band books of the 19th Virginia, which were in the Museum of the Confederacy. Now it's called the Museum of the American Civil War. But they are the only Virginia Confederate band books to survive. So that in itself says that there's something, you know. You look at Union band books, you've got the Port Royal brand band book, uh, you've got everybody, you look at the Brass uh, Band Journal, such things as that. Mm-hmm. There are bits and pieces of other band books. I shouldn't say bits and pieces, they're actually some pretty good collections, as I understand. 26 North Carolina probably has done the best. Mm -hmm. But I think the 8th Georgia has a lot of their original music. Mm -hmm. So basically, we had the band books, uh, the only band books that Virginia Confederate music that survived. So that in itself to me waved the big flag and said, hey, this looks like something we should do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely.
0: So that's yeah, how yeah. I
2: got started on that. Yeah. Uh, later on with the Jamestown music, it was much the same thing. Virginia music, uh, nobody, people had done things, but nobody had put together a CD with the three years of music, 1807, 1907, which was very rich. My goodness, there was marches written every other day, I think, in <laughs> 1907. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then uh, 2007 is basically represented by my march, which is I call The Trumpeter of Jamestown. And uh, let's see, I guess the other big thing was that there was a movie called, oh, I forget what it was called. It was a terrible, terrible movie. It made Jim, it made, um, oh, who's the guy who was, he, in my book was the hero of Jamestown, made him look like a real dolt. <laughs> but true. the music was well. the music for the movie was done by the guy who had done the music for the Titanic. Uh, James so Warner. David got made arrangements with him to produce a band, and that's recorded on the on the James um, band. Yeah. a band yeah. arrangement of it.
0: That's awesome, I mean, really cool. Do you yeah. know if the uh, if the 19th Virginia, do you know any history about uh, the the band itself during the the,
2: the well, it, it's a real mystery. The there are muster records in the now in the civil war museum american civil war museum and there's uh records in i I guess well i guess that's that's the main place Uh, and it's interesting that the there's a muster only two musters of, of a dozen or maybe two dozen have the band and unlike the 26th North Carolina Regimental Band and unlike the Stonewall Brigade Band, the band of the 19th Virginia was really made up of people, of men from a company. Mostly it was Company A. Uh, and the band was just an assi- other assignment. Hmm. That was pretty unique from what I've been able to find.
0: To the best of your knowledge, was that band? just formed out of musicians that were enlisted in that company? Or was it a
2: town band prior to the war? We don't really know. In fact, the music itself, the band book of the 19th Virginia itself is a mystery because it has no Confederate patriotic tunes in it. it actually, has no Union patriotic tunes in it. It has that subtitle, Vauxhall Band. And it implies to me that the, the band book, we call it the band book, the 19th of January, the Smithfield Brass Band. Probably the band book was used at some outside gig. I think there was a Vauxhall Gardens at, on an island in Richmond. just a pleasure garden. Mm. And, but we don't know when the era was. Uh, some hints, I was marching there called the Bright Hopes Quick Step. And we know that there was a railroad charted about 10 years after the Civil War called the Bright Oaks Railroad. So, goodness, one thing is maybe the book didn't come along until 10 years later. Mm-hmm. But nobody has ever been able to, to, as far as I know, to pin any further identification down on that thing. All of the men were from, let's see if I'm right on that. I think that's a correct statement. All of the men were from Isle of Wight County or Smithfield. Um, and I think most of them were from Company A
0: or Battery A. It was an
2: artillery unit, It's to to be a Battery A.
0: Gotcha. So you think that the 19th Virginia band was was nicknamed Smithfield while they were already in service? Or is it possible that there was a Smithfield brass band prior to the war and then they enlisted and
2: became the 19th Virginia? There's, there's a possibility. Uh, there is so much music at the... Uh, Museum of the Confederacy, uh, now Museum of the American Civil War, so much music of, of E-flat alto horn parts for, for the band in Smithfield. I think maybe there are a hundred parts, <laughs> nothing else. No tenor horn parts, no leads, no nothing. Uh, so, I, so I'm inclined to think that the, what they've got at the, American Museum of the Civil War is a spectrum of time that the that, that band was in existence. I suspect that there was already a band because one of the early players was named Kofor. And about a month later, his cousin or brother joined the group. So somebody, in, in other words, they already knew how to play. And there's this mysterious guy called Professor Umbrick. Who is listed in one of the museums as contributing to the band? Can't ever find anything about him. I don't know who he is, when he when he was, or anything. Hmm. Hmm. I suspect he was probably a maybe in charge of music at one of the theaters or something like that. But there's just really we know nothing whatsoever about the nineteenth Virginia. Gotcha.
0: Can you uh, maybe talk about some of the considerations that you took when trying to? select the you know from those hundreds of pieces that you're saying that you saw the alto horn parts from uh how you narrowed it down to include the ones that you did in your uh 19th uh
2: collection yes that's a very simple answer i took the band book itself (laughs) if it wasn't in the band book i didn't put it in place
0: because
2: the band book had some of the the items in the band book were really in bad shape But by and large, with the exception of the tuba part, which was missing, parts were all there. Hmm. And so that was very simple for me to put it into software, musical software. And uh, it wasn't really necessary to decide, should I do this or should I do that? I just took the 18 selections and and produced the band book.
0: Gotcha. So there was a band book for every instrument for... The band except for tuba but then there were additional parts of alto horn parts for other pieces that uh, didn't have other parts along with them
2: yes that's right i don't know how the collection was organized in the museum but that's that's a good summary of it is that there were the band books and then there was individual music both identified as being part of the smithfield brass band
0: hmm.
2: and i think Depending on, you know, I think it would be a good master's, maybe a doctoral pro- uh, project for your group up there to look into producing band book number two or something or going through and, and knowing knowing what these other selections were, you know, like Ao Columbia, that was, that was some patriotic music in there, a lot of Dixies, apparently. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, producing a, a band book, uh, and with, with the alto part, you, you can do a pretty good job of assuming who was doing what uh, with the other parts there. So, it might might be a great opportunity for somebody up there in, in George Mason to produce a band book number two or band book number three. Gotcha.
0: I know uh, one of our previous guests, Dr. Michael O'Connor. He's a uh, leader of the Coates Brass Band and Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band too. Early. American Brass Bands, and he's going through a, a major project right now of trying to catalog and identify every piece of uh, early American Brass Band repertoire that existed uh, from 1835 to, I think he's doing it to like the late 1870s or something like that. So I made sure to to provide him with the list of all the, the songs yeah. that are a part of this collection and stuff, and... Yeah, who knows, maybe he's uh, done some of that work and will be able to to enlighten us on some of the, the music.
2: That, that would be good, to. yeah. The Brass Band Journal was interesting. I found uh, threads of that out in Utah. That, that It was used apparently by some of the Utah bands back in the 19th century. Hmm. Well, I'm sure that will come out in his study. Yeah, there are so
1: many uh, like community bands and um, that it's hard to trace down the history you know from this time because as you were saying you know earlier every town, every company, every it seemed like every fire house you know had a band during this time and then so trying to track down information about them can be kind of tricky. Um, and then obviously if it was a town band that then you know enlisted in the military during the Civil War, especially like you're saying was the case with the 19th Virginia band where the band, duties seem to be kind of secondary maybe they were soldiers first and musicians um you know as a secondary duty that would make sense then why a lot of those parts are missing if those yeah soldiers were you know out in the field of battle you know yeah fighting and then <laughs> you know dropped a book along the way somewhere you know who knows
2: yeah um, I, and i think it's even more complex with the 19th East virginia because they were stationed within a probably a couple hours ride of their homes mm-hmm. uh, around Petersburg. Yeah. So they, they could leave the things at home, I guess. Right. Here is a, here's a list that I came up with of uh, members and I'll just read one, one of them as an example. Mosby, Charles E. Drummer, Company B. As we came. I, and, and then the references. Incidentally, there's a book. I don't know whether you've seen it called the 10th and 19th Virginia heavy artillery regiments. Yeah. It's a series of, of uh, books on regiments. But anyway, uh, most be enlisted on November the 27th, 1862, he shows in the August 31st, 1864, and December 31st, 1864, as a member of the battalion band. Those two musters, the August 31st and the December 31st, are the only two in the entire span of the civil war where the brand is broken out Hmm. and i also have a note here he does not show in the list of members from the museum of the confederacy Hmm. so i guess what i did i must have gotten his information uh, enlisting information from that series of books called the 10th and the 19th heavy artillery yeah and in general let's see if it ain't more that Here's one poor guy died uh, in August of 1864. But no, the, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, in- interesting. Um, and when you were creating uh, this collection for the for the heavy artillery band, you mentioned how you had to create the tuba part. Were there any other uh, additions or changes or corrections that you had to make while you were creating the, the band book, recreating the band book?
2: There were some where the band books were torn, or there were some problems, uh, probably not more than 2 or 3%. So, in other words, I didn't have to do very much. The bass drum was a very bad one, though, because I had trouble telling what the difference between the beats and the rest. <laughs> so... Uh, and it was, it, was, it was key in doing the tuba part, the bass part, because if, if, if the bass drum hit, I figured, well, the tuba is probably being too yeah, at the same probably, time. Probably. Now, later on, when it was recorded, Glenn Fifield added a B-flat cornet part. He, he became convinced that there was also a B-flat cornet part missing. Huh. And if you look at Civil War brass bands like the 26th North Carolina Regimental Band, indeed, there's usually a, there's always a, a, at least one B flat cornet.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So he did add uh, basically a harmony part, and let's see. I think he also cleaned up the two horn, two tenor horns, and alto horn part because the uh, they were basically playing the pause. You know, and they were duplicating. One of them would duplicate the other. Mm-hmm. So his theory was that probably the person who was producing the books did not have a score that he worked from. He just gotcha. went ahead and did each book. But those are the only only times, and I couldn't tell you the difference of <laughs> of, of what the bands would, would sound like if we didn't have that B flat. The, the recordings of the band that you you've got have the B flat cor- cornet part in it, and mm-hmm. the pauses have been cleaned up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming there were uh, probably
0: some note corrections that you had to make as well, right? Or were the was it pretty accurate in terms? It of was notes? pretty
2: accurate. In fact, uh, it was all handwritten, and in general, it was pretty clear what the note was. And there were some exceptions. Shorthand. You you've probably done this. In fact, when I was doing arranging, uh, that would be typically. I would use a short dash. <laughs> which was at about 45 degrees and that was a quarter note <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> with a stem on it. Uh, that was some of that. But you, yeah. by and large, it was really pretty easy to figure out what the notes were. That's good. Yeah.
0: Can you maybe talk a little bit about how the recording project came to be and how you became involved with uh, with helping to provide the, the music for the recording project?
2: Yeah, the... Project, I, well, I looked around after I, I, I published the books, I looked around for some band in Virginia who would be interested in making a CD. It just looked like to me it cried out for a CD. Mm-hmm. And I could not find any. And we had a daughter who at the time lived in Logan, Utah, where her husband was doing postdoc in microbiology at uh, Utah State and she sent me a clipping not a, a huge it was an article out of the paper about this 19th century brass band that was plays out of there so i said look at that so i got in touch with Glenn Fifield, who directed the band and told him what i had and one thing led to another and he decided that yeah we, he would make a, a cd so it was all done out there he along the way he as i say he discovered concluded that there was a B -B flat cornet part missing and he cleaned up the pause and they embarked upon recording and they found uh, as well as I remember the story was, they found that the cornet parts were so taxing that the, the best way to get them recorded was to record the rest of the band and then the cornets in the room by themselves listening to the band with headphones oh, wow. and playing interesting that it, that seemed to work fine gotcha uh, the only other thing only other time i got involved was at the very end of the project he sent me the final tracks and in the, the five song well for Lorena, we had five songs where, where we had taken i had suggested that we have singing soldiers or so singing soldiers singing along with a brass band. And so four of them came out of my book about the museum, the patriotic tunes and airs of the Confederate States of America. And the, the Dixie and Bonnie Blue Flag were particularly bad because it would go, we are a band of brothers mothers and turn native to the hoop. I said, what in the world is that? Well, it turned out to be the quartet that was singing got so enthralled at the music, they bumped against the microphone as they were recording. <laughs> and and the record, it, it wasn't that obvious, as, as yeah, I just yeah. told you. But anyway, it produced a, 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 what basically a single cycle sine wave uh, yeah. when they hit the microphone. So, <laughs> my involvement with the recording project was to use my SoundForge software and go through and take out the thumps. Uh-huh. <laughs> There you go. But yeah. it, it was an interesting application of modern technology to fixing up those 19th century songs.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a great album. I uh, I was recently trying to find out, and you know, you and I were in in touch about this. So this is more to to catch up the audience, the people listening. But sure. I was trying to to find if the Crestmark Military Brass Band was still an active group. So I went through uh, all the personnel on the CD, and I was trying to find people that were involved with it. Yeah, yeah. And I eventually got in touch with Hal Briggs, who was one of the the cornet players on the album. And he informed me that the Crestmark Military Brass Band is now going by the name of the 7th Infantry (laughs) Regimental Brass Band. Yes, yeah. uh, So people will see that kind of listed that way on our our website in the active... uh, the active band category. I
2: bet, yeah, I bet that that's typical of, of what you're finding with brass bands. Yeah, it? yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. They change then, their uh, spots. I think there's some brass band up in Baltimore playing as a sec- uh, 26 North Carolina band. Yeah, that's Yeah, that's
0: Yari Villan, the Waivers group. He, uh, he has the Federal City Brass Band. Federal, yeah. And then, yeah, they have a Confederate impression, which is the 26 North Carolina. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, yeah, it's a great album, the uh, the Dear Mother I've come home to die quick. Yeah, I, I thought that was Our so uh, <laughs> so interesting that they were yeah, they're, moder- they're playing on modern instruments, but but it is it is very good, very clean and and music that's not recorded anywhere else, so it, it's great to hear it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were most fortunate to get Colonel Gibson from EMI to narrate. He's the one who ho- actually holds the whole CD together something that i
0: that i really loved about the uh the 19th collection the 19th virginia collection and you made and everything from your from your uh repertoire that you've written is how accessible you make all the music i know it's a a mission of steven and i through the podcast and also our own band that we're trying to increase people's awareness of this music and kind of break down some of the barriers that some people might feel that there are in order to get involved with this music. And something that we love with yours is that you include a bunch of substitute parts uh, in the music. I noticed that that was in the Virginia, uh, the 19th Virginia collection, but then even more so, the your collection titled The Brass Band's Your Own for the Rest of Us, which I think... Yes, yes. Which is an awesome collection that I think you know can become... People's gateway into playing this type of music, if especially if they don't have E flat cornets or E flat alto horns. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about uh, some of the changes you made and and why that particular project was on your list of things to to get done?
2: Yes, the Brass Band Journal, as, as I mentioned earlier, I found traces of that almost everywhere I looked. Mm-hmm. It was published. I forget who, who was the company. It was a New York company. And I think it was as early as 1850 that they first started publishing those yeah, things. It's the Firth Pond and Company. Yeah, Firth. And I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I started looking at that. I heard some band somewhere play play the music. And it was simply terrible because, it was, you know, it, it basically it was B-flat. It was ordinary mortals with B-flat cornets trying to play uh, the E-flat parts of trying to play death. And that's so consequently, that's when I dropped the pitch out of half, about half an octave, and gave it the title of fast band journal for the rest of us, because although the structure of the arrangements was the same, and by and large, the instrumentation was the same, two, two cornets, uh, alto horn. I think there were two tenor horns, but I'm not sure, and a tuba. Might've been just a, a quintet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found later there was a, I sent them to a friend of mine down in the Norfolk area and his brother played with the Fort, I forget what the name of the Fort, at the time it was a Fort Monroe band, I guess it was a trade hoc band. And they really liked those arrangements with the reduced pitch. In other words, uh, it's, there's always a danger when you're talking with, with good musicians is they want to play those things originally where they were. But he, he spoke so highly of that. He said, these things are really great because we can play them and we don't get worn out. Mm. So that's yeah. basically how that came about.
0: And yeah, trying to save some of the, the trumpet players face. If they're not on that, uh if they're not on the E flat cornet, those things really scream in the, on a B flat trumpet. So. Oh,
2: you're <laughs> right. Yeah, well, as one of the things I did was to come up with a measure of how difficult they were, like counting the number of notes in the in a given piece above the key, above above the staff. You know, mm-hmm. but to me, I, I can play. I can, I have trouble getting anything above E on the staff. <laughs> start talking about above the staff, and then start talking about replicating E flat cornet parts. It's, you never come down below the staff.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Well, and that's something that I mean, when you're when you're talking about trying to bring this music into like present day practice, I mean, trumpet players barely play cornets anymore, let yeah. alone an E flat cornet. I mean, it, it, you your modern, you know, let's say university level trumpet player is probably going to have a B flat trumpet and a C trumpet. So oh, if you're yeah. So, trying to play these E flat cornet parts on B flat and C trumpets, I mean you're lucky to get through a tune and a half before you're just yeah. absolutely shocked. You're so, right, you're So right. if, I mean, if there's really any hope of of this music, you know, bringing it forward and using it in that educational setting, um, you know, exactly what you did with the For the Rest of Us kind of subtitle. Yeah. On the <laughs> I, I mean, it's, at some point you get, it's got to be necessary to, to make it accessible, which yeah. is great that it yeah. exists. It's great that you did that. Yeah. And the fact that you tried to keep it you know other than dropping the range keep it largely as it was yeah uh, to preserve some of that historical aspect too is is great i mean i i don't think there's another way that um you're going to be able to play this music today uh with some of the instrumentation challenges than yeah you did so
2: let me ask you all a question i've never gotten a good answer to this why is it that they're the E flat. Why is it that it was those things were pitched so high that we needed the E flat cornets? I've got a theory, but I wanted to know if you've ever looked into
1: that. I mean, that with the the sax horn family, you know, Adolf Sax really loved that alternating E flat, B flat, E flat, yeah, e flat yeah, yeah, pitching. Um, and since those horns were floating around, maybe that's why. But I mean, other outside of that, that's just off the top of my head. You know, something that I'm yeah pulling out of my rear end there.
2: <laughs> it's true or not. Well, my theory is it all goes back to the military band of the 18th century, which was basically either two clarinets or two oboes, you know, playing the first in the harmony, mm-hmm. two French horns, basically, and a bass line.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And fifes. Uh, and I used to have, get arguments on this, the typical fife, um, uh, well, let's see. Your, your fiance, I believe, plays five, doesn't she, Chris?
0: Yeah, yeah. I have like three of them laying in this yeah. room right now.
2: <laughs> Ask her what key it's in. The answer, I think, is going to be A flat. Okay. And so what they do is they're, they're most there's no uh, finger, no little finger key on the five. So basically, they can't below go below what I would call a D. Mm-hmm. But basically, the five it plays in the key of B flat. And so I my theory is that the Sach, Adolf Sachs and the people who came along were working with military bands, and that basically the military band of the time was playing most of the things in B flat or E flat mm-hmm. so anyway that's that's my theory, yeah <laughs> otherwise, I can't imagine why in the world we would uh, <laughs> put those things up so high
0: right yeah, yeah. just uh, just to uh, hurt just our ears to torture people yeah exactly. yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, it it kind of goes along with the discussion, Stephen, that you and I were having with Jonathan Hodgetts from Wessex last week in the Mm -hmm. episode. Uh, We were, Randy, talking about how, uh, kind of similar to the talk we were having today with Rob Stewart, um, how reproduction brass instruments at some point is probably going to need to become the standard if we're looking to expand and grow this ensemble type to any like great extent because there's only so many period instruments right that that exist and that number is going to continue to get smaller as people you know put them in museums or or keep them in their collection yeah you're right Mm -hmm. So period instruments is or sorry reproduction instruments i think is the way forward uh for large-scale uh you know, incorporation for people to get involved, especially at university levels and stuff. And then similarly, you know, making the music that accessible, you know, if people aren't going to get reproduction instruments in E flat, B flat, E flat, B flat kind of going down, they're going to need a way to play this music on the instruments that they have.
2: Yeah. And
0: and that's going to be B flat trumpets and French horns and French horns. Yep. yep, Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's kind of, the other side of the coin but of the same discussion of how to make this music more accessible so that people can learn from it and become exposed to it. Yeah,
2: good for you. Good for you. Uh, In your work, have you touched any on British brass bands and the difference between American brass bands and British?
0: Yeah, we've discussed how how they both developed at the same time and how uh, the traditions kind of split a little bit, but yeah, they
2: kind of all came from the same place and then kind of did their own things once they were, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest difference that I'm aware of is everything except the third, no, except the second trombone part is in the treble clef Mm -hmm. in the British brass bands.
1: Yeah. I think the timpani part is in bass clef as well. Oh, is it? Yeah. I think, I think it's the bass trombone and the timpani part are in bass clef, but then okay else yeah. Right. Yeah. Everything else is in treble clef, and you still you largely have that alternating E flat B flat. System yeah. So that people can hop around parts without. That's that's,
2: that's what any, I understand is the reason yeah. behind the thing is you had like maybe a, the, the the some coal company or miners or something they had a band and somebody didn't show up mm-hmm. but they had his instruments. so right. the fingering is exactly
1: the same. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It. Yeah. yeah it's kind of yeah. it's like a whole user friendly musical interface yeah, you know the yeah. <laughs> you can just hop around unless you play the trombone Then you yeah, have right. fingerings but <laughs> that's <laughs> right there's the, right. the, the, probably the, a story base, behind that one too
0: yeah. <laughs> if the bass trombone player doesn't show up then then you're just so will <laughs>
2: <laughs> but
1: i i feel like in a lot of the older stuff i mean now the british brass band tradition has gotten crazy i mean it, they've always had contests and stuff but those test pieces that they use for those contests are really wildly difficult but i i feel like maybe some of the like the original like the older rep that bass trombone parts probably doubled somewhere like in the e-flat tuba
2: of, yeah yeah uh,
1: you know huh. to still to still you know have it be represented but yeah i play in a, a british brass band down here well up here i guess um it's newly formed brass band in northern virginia and we were going to be at the NABA competition that was supposed to happen in April. And we were working on some, some test pieces for our division. And wow. were, I mean, they're, they're challenging pieces. I mean, oh, <laughs> the symphonium parts are hard. And then you look across, you know, the rectangle there, how you're set up at the cornet players and they're just buried in the stands and just, go. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's fun. It's a lot of fun though. Oh, that is great.
2: Well, I didn't realize that there was English brass bands
1: here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's one, um, Yeah. In the Fairfax area. So
0: that's kind of the interesting thing too, is is that we had our own brass band tradition and then that evolved, you know, into the community band concert band tradition that we have in the United States and the American brass band essentially died off. But But at the same time in Europe, the brass band that formed at the same time continued and is in some ways kind of their dominant or one of their dominant, uh, ensemble types in the UK. Mm. And now it's interesting because the British, you know, American Brass Band and British Brass Band kind of going along in time. Then the American Brass Band goes away. The British Brass Band keeps on going. And now the British Brass Band ensemble is now coming back to the United States. And there's a huge British Brass Band movement happening in the United States with NABA, the North American Brass Band Association that Stephen Mm. just mentioned. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of Mm -hmm. interesting how people are Kind of discovering brass band music for the first time in the united states but through the british brass band tradition and it's like we had our own tradition we had <laughs>
2: yes.
0: we we had it too It just, yeah. you
2: know.
0: it's funny i've never thought about it that way chris but that is hilarious yeah. now yeah. That he, it you is. Can yeah. kind of lay it's it like, out that way <laughs> yeah. it's like we had it. it it was ours too it's just we you know we have the concert bands well that about wraps it up thank you yeah. so okay much. well thank, thank you all yeah thank, thank you Ray. it's awesome getting the, the chat with you i'm excited that people are going to be able to hear your story and and learn more about the all the hard work that you've done for preserving and spreading early american brass band music we know it's gonna, oh, well
2: thank you we
0: know it's going to help a lot of people so we really appreciate you doing that work and taking the time to, to speak with steven and i today yeah definitely thank, thank, thank you, you so much, much. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Thank you again so much, Randy Cowell, for coming onto the podcast to speak with Stephen and I. Uh, As I mentioned, Randy was one of the the first people that I was in touch with in the early American brass band community, and he helped start my collection of music by sharing with me uh, much of the music that he talked about in this episode. So, yeah, very grateful for him taking the time to speak with us and. We're very excited to have the honor and opportunity to share that music with you. So, if you're interested in playing or even just looking and studying any of the music that Randy talked about in this episode, be sure to send us an email at eabb.podcast.com. We'd be happy to share it with you. Uh, at some point, as Stephen mentioned at the top of the episode, there'll be a, some point in the future, some other way that we'll uh, make that music available. But as of this recording, Just shoot us an email. We'll be happy to send it to you.
1: Our featured album for this episode is the one we mentioned during the episode. It's uh, the Crestmark Military Band album uh, titled Dear Mother, I've Come Home to Die Quick Step. You can find more information about that album on the show notes page for this episode. Uh, That's at our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. Click on show notes. Uh, and it will have links there for you to buy the album uh, and some information about it. It's also on the discography page under the resources tab along with uh, a giant list of other albums that you might be interested in. So go check out the Crestmark Military Band Dear Mother, I've Come Home to Die Quick Step album. And uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week.